Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone. I am here with Sandra Wachter. Sandra is a professor at Oxford. Sandra, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am looking forward to digging into our chat. Of course, to get things started, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field of artificial intelligence as a lawyer. Yes. I guess like it started with the fact that I always was very, very excited about technology. And I grew up with an understanding that technology could actually help us bring the world closer together. Mm. And this started off in the field of health tech, actually. That was the first area that I looked at because medical devices, that makes immediate sense that people understand that this can be helpful for a lot of people in our society. And then over time, and especially my PhD, I branched out much broader and got interested in all types of technologies and how they can be used for good or bad, and mm -hmm. got interested in the question of how it affects laws, how it affects society, and what it is that we can do to reap the benefits and, and mitigate the risks. Nice. Have you ever been a practicing lawyer? Did you go through law school and all that, or are you thinking about the law? Yes, I did go through law school. I have a special degree in, in medical law. I do have a PhD in law. So yes, full-fledged lawyer in that regard. Yes. And stayed in academia. Nice. Nice. Tell us about your research. And I was going to ask what's your take on the state of the of AI and the law, but, <laughs> but that is a very broad topic, yeah. but it's not one that I've talked about extensively here on the podcast. So there's lots to dig in there, but we'll be a bit more focused and I'll ask you to talk a little bit about your research interests, which you spend a lot of time thinking about specific areas that AI intersects law? Uh, what are those areas? Yes. So in general, I focus on the legal and ethical aspects of emerging technologies. And at the moment, I have three very distinct research interests that have to do with AI. There is much more, so I don't want to say those are the only three that people have to care about, but those are the only three I have time to care about at the moment. <laughs> And there are three, three aspects that I think we need to think about whenever we use algorithms for decision-making. One definitely has to do with the black box problem. The other one has to do with data protection issues. And the third one has to do with bias. So those three areas, regardless of where you deploy an algorithm, whether this is in the US, whether this is in Europe, whether this is in New Zealand, and whether this is in banking or education or in the health sector, those three areas will be important because you're always going to want to understand how a decision was made. How did the black box come to the conclusion that you shouldn't get insurance or that you have to go to prison, for example? Always going to be a black box problem. There is always going to be a data problem because an algorithm is useless without data. So whenever you talk about algorithms, you have to talk about data. And whenever you talk about data, you have to talk about algorithms because data is only worth anything if you can analyze it in a way. Mm -hmm. Genius thing about inferential analytics and AI is that you can learn so much about people, but the scary thing about AI is that it can learn so much about people. 
So <laughs> the question is, how can we navigate through that, that I have a powerful tool that is able to learn a lot of things about me that can be helpful, right? And a good can help me diagnose cancer, but can also infer whether I'm gay or not, or whether I voted in the last election, or whether I'm a woman, or whether what my sexual orientation is, right? So the question is, what needs to be done from a data protection issue? And then the last one has to deal with, with bias and discrimination. And again, this is prevalent regardless of country and regardless of sector where you're deployed, because the data that we collect is, unfortunately, in most instances, not fair. Reason being because the world is not fair. It's not fair in any part of the world, fully at least. And it's usually not fair, fully fair in any of the sectors where AI is being used. So the bias will be inherited when you train the algorithms on it. And just think about all the different types of sectors where we use them, right? Use them in education, we use them in a traditional sector, we use them in employment. Those are all areas where we know that biases exist. So it is no surprise that we just going to transport human biases into algorithmic biases. So regardless of where you are in the world and regardless of what you're using the technology for, you need to think about those things. And those are the three areas that I am trying to make an effort to come up with, with a contribution at least. Nice, nice. Well, let's maybe explore those in turn in talking about the, the black box challenge. You know, we've talked about that quite a bit on the podcast, the need for transparency to some degree or explainability to some degree, you know, often from the perspective of I'm a business person, I'm relying on this algorithm to help me make a decision. I kind of, in order to develop a level of trust, I kind of want to know why it's recommending the thing that it's recommending. You know, when you bring in the element of law, and maybe more broadly regulation, how do the, the ways I need to think about that problem change? Right. I mean, you can do it with a brute force instrument and just say, I, as a regulator, I'm only going to allow algorithms that are explainable, period, exclamation point, mm -hmm. and just live with those consequences. And that is something that has been discussed. And whenever this discussion comes up, then people will immediately say, hold on, hold on, hold on. You can't do this because you cannot explain algorithms. So if you do that, then you flat out banning them. That was the research. That was the wisdom of the day when I entered the stage to get interested in this topic, that it's just impossible. So when I thought about this a bit more, I came to the conclusion was, yes, there are probably two reasons why people don't want to give you an explanation, right? The first is because they can't, and the second is because they don't want to. And those are two different topics. One is definitely because they don't want you, and that has to do with trade secrets. So they could tell you how an algorithm works because it's not so complex that you wouldn't know. You could actually tell somebody why somebody has to go to prison because the algorithm is not that complex. So that's something where the law can come in and say, well, you know, just open up that black box because we know the answer. It's just a question of trying to balance the interests of business and the interests of the wider community in our society. Mm -hmm. So there is something that the law could do. And I recommend it, for example, to have like a trusted third party that could have access to that. So it doesn't have to be spread everywhere. The more challenging, I don't want to give you an explanation part is there because I can't part, which is, not even the person writing the code allegedly 
does fully understand what's going on. So even if they wanted to, they can't. And that's the more challenging problem because the law doesn't really have an answer there yet because some things are unfortunately not explainable even to a full extent to the people who are writing the code. However, I don't usually take no for an answer. So I figured I tried to explore if that's actually fully true. And I teamed up with two other people. One of them is Brent Middlestead, who is an ethicist, and Chris Russell, who works in machine learning. And we wrote a paper that is called Counterfactual Explanations Without Opening the Black Box. So what we try to do there is try to take all those concerns on board and say, okay, is there a way to understand what's going on inside of a black box without fully understanding the black box, right? Yeah. And we came up with counterfactual explanations as a way to do that because we saw it from the view of the person who wants to have an explanation, right? I have to go to prison. I didn't get the job. I wasn't promoted. The thing that I want is not a full-fledged code explanation. What I want to know is, why the hell didn't I get the promotion? And what do I need to do different to get the promotion? That's the thing I'm actually after, right? Right. If you fire me and you give me a piece of code in my hand, I'm going to be very angry at you, actually, mm-hmm. and feel like you haven't listened to me. And that's exactly how explanations usually work in human settings. I want to know the criteria, the reasons why it didn't happen and what I need to do differently. Yeah. And luckily... That type of reasoning is something that you can code. So we call it counterfactual explanations in human settings, but in code, you can also generate a counterfactual. So where you just have a very complex system, one that you might not be fully to understand why, but I can tell you why in this particular case, the decision was made in a certain way. So if you applied for a loan, for example, a counterfactual will tell you, you were denied the loan because your income was 30,000 pounds. If it had been 35,000 pounds, would have given you the loan. So you get the most important criteria and it tells you something, what needs to be done to change the result. It gives you grounds to contestation, all that good stuff without having to understand the complexity of the full code. And that was a way to find a middle ground there where we can do something in a way. And that's then something that the law could require you to do. Mm-hmm. And that was actually quite exciting. So we wrote that paper a couple of years back and Google came across our work, interestingly enough, and they implemented an intensive flow. And later on, they implemented it in Google Cloud as well. And then many other companies have followed suit, such as Vodafone, for example, which is amazing to see. So the things that we cooked up in our ivory tower, basically, were actually something that had a positive meaning for people working on the ground, which is exciting. But anybody interested in the topic can look at our paper and the code is freely available. Everybody can use that type of explanation if they wanted to. So it's freely accessible. But yeah, that is definitely a way to think about opening the black box in a meaningful way. Oh, that's awesome. Can you give us an overview of how those counterfactual explanations are created or, or generated? Yes. So what you do is you try to find the closest and minimal changes to a current decision model that need to be taken in order to get the thing that you want. Mm. So you're not actually just asking, how does the rationale of the algorithm work? What you're doing is, okay, what are the smallest possible changes that I need to do to get from point one to B? And the interesting thing is that I could give you multiple counterfactuals, right? I could tell you, 
oh, you didn't get admitted to law school because your reference letters were bad and or because your grades were too low or because you had typos in whatever, right? And then give you a ranking of that. And then you can figure out what would be the most helpful for you. Because for some of us, it's easier to change the spelling on the cover letter for others, it'd be easier to find better reference letter writers, right? Mm -hmm. So to give a more diverse set of possible grounds to improve your current situation is a very, very good benefit of counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. So you have some data point that you want to generate these explanations for. And so then you permute it in different dimensions to try to understand what different decisions the model might take. And then yes. you use that to create the explanations. Yes, exactly. Very, very cool. Very cool. Tell us about other approaches that you've taken in this area to explore explainability in the black box. Yeah, so those are the counterfactuals are still an, an ongoing research area. We are currently drumming up a new project in that area, so I'm able to talk about that in a little bit. Other than that, my colleague Chris Russell has been working very strongly on the tech side of that, trying to figure out how to come up with an idea what the most useful counterfactual for a person is. Because I said, for some people, it might be the most telling, the easiest to change. If I told you, you have to increase your income in order to get a loan for others, it might be easier to move to a different zip code, right? Mm -hmm. So how can I weigh that? How can I figure out what's the most useful thing for a person to know when they want to have an explanation. And Chris Russell, for example, has explored that as well. I'll just follow up work on that. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And then the second focus area for you is around data protection. And it sounds like your work is exploring a fundamental question of, is privacy still viable in this fully connected world with machines making predictions and accessing consumer data and the degree to which what our expectations should be and how we can protect data. You know, tell us a little bit more about that area and some of your work there. That is a topic very close to my heart. I said it already a little bit, but just to give people a little bit of the scary landscape of what's actually out there is that I don't think we really fully understand how good those algorithms are to predict very, very sensitive and intimate information about us that we might not want to share with anybody at all. And they can do that from very seemingly neutral data. So if I use my search engine, for example, Bing, they are able to infer based on how I move my mouse whether I have Alzheimer's disease. Are you aware of that? Are you aware that you are giving that health information away to the outside world? Are you aware that Twitter can infer whether you have depression just based on what you tweet online? Are you aware that... And, and to be clear, when you give these examples, are you posing them as hypotheticals? Bing could... No, no. They have published a paper that they can do that. Okay. Right? So that's why I'm trying to say this is not a hypothetical, something that yeah, I cook yeah. up in the ivory tower. That's fact. They can do that. Mm -hmm. One of the most problematic ones is definitely what happened with Facebook. And again, there is research that shows that able to infer sexual orientation, ethnicity, gender, ability, without 
any of their users identifying with any of those classes and groups, mm -hmm. just based on what they click on, what they like, what they post, and who their friends are. They mm -hmm. can have that information and then use it in a way where they, for example, allow advertisers to exclude them from seeing certain products. And this is something that they did, for example. So they would, mm -hmm. in the US, infer that somebody, for example, black, and would allow advertisers to exclude them from seeing job offers and ads for housing mm -hmm. and financial services. So it's not just a theoretical problem that you should not know those things about me unless I say it's okay, but it also actually has negative consequences because it can be used against you in a way where you don't know about it. So with all of that, and again, so it's just three examples that show how powerful those algorithms are. I mean, we have data protection law. Why not just apply data protection law to all of those problems? And the issue here is at least the one that I, I've been currently working on in a, or I've been working on a research project in a paper that I wrote, which is called A Right to Reasonable Inferences, is that I showed that the current data protection law was designed in a way without fully anticipating the power of AI. And therefore, it was designed in a way, in a very almost 20th century way of thinking about privacy, mm -hmm. in the sense that 20th century privacy is, I'm in my home, and I don't like my neighbor. He's very nosy, and he keeps coming over to the fence, and he's looking at me, and he says, oh, Sandra is again eating ice cream before noon. Oh, my God, right? <laughs> she has no self-control. Heavens to murgatory. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> So she has no self-control whatsoever, which is true. But that's the idea. So what is it that the law wants to do is that I want to prevent the nosy neighbor from collecting information about me. So I give all the power to me. So you have to ask me first. And that is how whole of the protection law works is a lot of like is based on consent or transparency, where somebody needs to tell you, be aware, be aware, I'm taking this data from you. Because in a human setting, that's the dangerous part. They are seeing something and I can anticipate what they know, right? Yeah. I'm sitting in my yard eating ice cream. That's the information that the neighbor now has about me. Mm -hmm. So this is why all the data protection law focuses on. With algorithm, collecting information about me being ice cream is the first step, right? Mm -hmm. That's not the thing that they actually after. They're interested in what they can infer based on my eating habits. And that's the question. That's something that my neighbor couldn't do. An algorithm now might be able to infer that I might have a higher chance of getting diabetes at some point, which is something my neighbor couldn't do, but an algorithm can. So the interesting or more interesting, more dangerous thing actually happens after data is being collected. Right. So everything that is being inferred, but the law doesn't really care about that so much because the law still thought the data collection part is the most dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. So I've wrote a very, very long paper, I don't know, 150 pages, just to show that that's a problem because the data protection law focuses too much on the input side of things, collecting the data, taking data from you, and not so much on the output stage, which is what can I learn about you? And that new laws actually need to govern the outputs rather than just the inputs. I'm curious about the length of the paper. It sounds obvious and clear when you, you know, you made a very simple and clear argument 
for this and you know i'm totally bought in why do you need 150 papers who are you trying to convince and what is it that they needed that you had to build out this 150 page argument i don't think people have looked in complete detail how it's actually being regulated mm. and i just went through with the magnifying glass to show that inferential analytics, unfortunately, or inferential data has almost to no protection. And I showed that in the case law as well, which is something that wasn't really looked at. Also, I had to do with the fact that I was talking about the general data protection regulation, which at that point was really new too. Okay. So there, a new framework came out. And Some of those pages went to explaining this new thing that no one understood. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> So that was important because it was very important to get the message across how really, really problematic that is, which I think up until this point wasn't really clear. Got it. So yes, that's what I usually do when I see there's a problem, then I'm not going to give you just one example. I'm giving you like all the examples so so you're with me and, and can understand that you really need to care at this point and something needs to be done. I'm no GDPR expert, but my sense is that GDPR, this wasn't really one of the issues that GDPR was addressing or trying to address. Is that right? Yes, that's definitely also one of the problems. And this is why data protection law was so much designed in the way to just keep the nosy neighbor out. What actually technology was capable of doing happened so much later, right? If we're very honest, the new GDPR that we have is to 80-90% the same stuff that we had in the Data Protection Directive. And they, that framework is from the 90s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there are updates there, yes. But the core mechanisms and the core assumptions and the thing that it's supposed to be doing hasn't really changed. This is not to say that it should necessarily regulate AI, but it's just to say, that it was never designed to regulate AI mm -hmm. in a way, and therefore it's failing. And I think a lot of people had hope that this new framework will be the silver bullet to all the problems. And I just wanted to say, no, I think there is still a lot of work to be done and we need to be very, very careful to do this right because there's so much on the line. Mm -hmm. You mentioned regulating AI. It's not even regulating AI as much as regulating data in the age of AI, yeah. right? Yes, definitely, definitely, yes even further removed from that. Is there a locale or a regulatory framework that you think does a good job with the issues that you've described? Are we there yet? No, I don't think we're there yet because I think it touches so many things at the same time that if you've wanted to come up with one framework, it will need to do a lot of work. I think mm -hmm. what probably be more helpful is that to rethink how regulation should work in the future anyway, that they don't silo data protection in one corner without thinking about competition law and without thinking about non-discrimination law and without thinking about super protection law, because all those things are very much interconnected. So one law that governs everything, I'm not sure if that's useful or necessary. I think what's very useful and very necessary is that different types of regulators start to collaborating more closely because AI kind of puts them in the same room anyway, then the data flow does that anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a better way of thinking about regulation is that 
almost every regulatory aspect or every sectoral law that we have will be touched by some type of technology at some point. So regulation is only one approach to ensuring good behavior. There's also kind of self-regulation or industry consortia or the like. Are there any examples of folks that you can point to that have taken a responsible approach to these issues or are particularly transparent? I'm just wondering if there's a good example or reference model that has emerged for, say, I guess I'm envisioning an enhanced data use statement or something like that, that talks not only about these are the organizations with which we share data, but these are the derivative products that are created, and this is how we use and or share that information. Is anyone doing that? Yes, I think everyone is doing that. And I think that's a little bit also of the, of the problem that everybody is doing that. Creating the derivative products and sharing them or documenting them and, and being transparent? No, creating codes of conduct and oh, okay. guidelines and best practices and standards and all of that is being created everywhere. It's created by governments, by industry, by NGOs, everywhere and anywhere. My colleague, Brent Midler, said he wrote a paper in Nature, I think, which was called Why Principles Alone Are Not Enough or something along those lines. And I think at the point when he wrote that piece, and that's also, I think, probably two years old at this point, he said that there are 150 different guidelines, best practices and standards out there. And they're all roughly the same. Yeah. And he he goes for them all and just points out how they are still lacking the thing, which is being applied in practice with having a good feedback look of how well they actually work in practice. So like I'm all for responsible innovation and research and trying to come up with best practices. And I think that's absolutely needed. But I think that part is now over. I think the interesting part is now to figure out, okay, is anybody actually deploying them in practice? How good are they? What kind of oversight mechanisms are there? It's it's great to have five wonderful ethical principles. If you don't tell me how you're actually operationalizing them, then I don't necessarily think the job's done yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And from the perspective of concerned parties, academia, what does the landscape look like in trying to address these issues? You know, there's certainly papers like yours where you identify the issue and show that it's not being addressed. What are the steps that we can build upon that to get to something that is a better place? Yes, I think that, I mean, that's obviously a biased view here, but I think that academia actually does have a a very big role to play. And I'm very happy to say that academia has played a very vocal and important role over the last years. I think if academia hadn't been as loud and persistent, a lot of things would have not have changed. So the questions around accountability and privacy protections have been front and center on a lot of agenda of, of people in the field. And have they have not been so persistently, I don't think that so much would change at the moment. So definitely that. And in that, I think one of the reasons, again, is why many of them have been so powerful and influential is because they very often work with people that are not from the same discipline than they are. And I think that's the key thing here, because I can just speak for myself. I think I could have not done it by myself. And it was very important to have an ethicist and a machine learning person on there 
to teach me and have them also endure my <laughs> my teachings. Mm -hmm. And I think that made the whole work stronger. And I think that's really what, if you are thinking about how to govern things, I think you owe it that you try to look at the issue from as many perspectives as possible. Mm -hmm. And then the third pillar of your research is focused on bias, fairness, and discrimination with regard to the law. It sounds like this is your most recent work and what you're most excited about right now. Tell us a little bit more about that area. Definitely, definitely extremely excited about that. I think everybody will know, as I said, that bias and unfairness is always an issue when we think about data and algorithms, because unless you collect in them in utopia, it's a fair, fair chance <laughs> that the data will be biased in some way. And that's the reality that we have to deal with. And you're speaking about kind of the fundamental premise of machine learning that, you know, we're training based on information we've collected about the past and this decisions that were made in the past and yes. the mechanism kind of fundamentally carries forth biases from the past into the future if there's not extreme care taken. Yes, absolutely. I should have said that. Yes. As you said, that's basically how all machine learning works is looking at the past, trying to predict the future, right? You feed the algorithm with a bunch of historical data, for example, who has been hired, who has gotten insurance, who was sent to prison, who did reoffend, who did get sick, and you train the model based on that because you think that you have some ground truth because you have historical data. You know if somebody actually got sick, right? You know if somebody did well in law school. You know if they're reoffended. And if somebody that looks similar, like the person is now applying for the job, is now applying to be left um, out on parole, is now wanting to be promoted. If they look like similar people that reoffended or did well on the job, then you give them the same chance because you assume that similar patterns will emerge, right? And that's all great. Again, if we tend to make good decisions, fair and just decisions that are accurate, but if you're very honest, very often that is not the case. So unless you're very, very careful, you will just reinforce the biases and injustices that we had in human decision-making, but at much greater speed and much less detectable. So I got interested in this topic as well. And the first question that I always ask myself is like, well, is the law sleeping? Why not just use the law to solve that problem? And I got interested in the question of non-discrimination law because that's the closest, the most sensible law to look at. Yeah, we wrote in... Two papers in the past, one is called Why Fairness Cannot Be Automated, which already tells you how I felt about whether this is possible. And what we did there was quite similar to, to previous work where we showed that the law just wasn't designed in a way to govern algorithms. It was designed to govern people, right? So if you think about a discrimination setting, a discrimination setting, a traditional one is where somebody indirectly or directly is not giving you the job because you're a woman or they harass you because of your religious beliefs or you are in a hostile environment where, where other things are going on that prevent you from succeeding. Basic point is you know that something's off, right? So you bring a complaint mm -hmm. and non-discrimination law will help you with that. So with algorithms, again, it's different because they discriminate behind your back without you actually being aware. 
So a complaint-based system such as non-discrimination law is completely powerless if the person doesn't know that they have been wronged. And again, that's not a failing of the law per se, and it's not a failing of the algorithm. It's just a very unhappy mismatch of the two because, again, the law was designed for people, not for, for algorithms. But discrimination still occurs. So what is it that I need to do? Which means we have to test and test and test because if I don't know, somebody has to know. And the problem is you can only know if you test for it because, and that's the second problem, very often you might not even know that the data that you have collected is biased or unfair towards certain people because, again, here the intuition kind of breaks down. And non-discrimination law was very much based on intuition. A judge looks at a case and says, oh, what, you banned headscarves from the workplace? That's a problem with freedom of religion. You don't need much data to make that point because there is a clear understanding of the social reality or the social symbolism of headscarves and religion. That's not much you need to do with that, right? But what if I got fired because I don't have a dog? That sounds maybe odd, but do I know that that correlates with ethnicity or gender, sexual orientation, religious belief? I really don't know anymore, right? So how am I supposed to bring a case in court if you're using data where my social gut doesn't ring alarm bells anymore? Mm -hmm. So those two things that I might not know about it, and that even if I know about it, that I have almost no way of proving it, means that fairness cannot be automated, hence the paper title. So we thought, okay, then you need to test. You need to test, test, test. Somebody needs to test, because otherwise you wouldn't know. So we came up with a bias test that lets you do that. So the test is called Conditional Demographic Disparity CDD. And we chose that test because it aligns the most with European non-discrimination law in a way that other tests do not. And this year, January or February, Amazon has came across our work and that bias test and they found it interesting and they have decided to implement it in their own bias toolkit. So SageMaker clarify. So now customers of, of Amazon can use that test as well. But again, as with all of our research, it's publicly available. So if anybody's interested in that, having a closer look or in the code or whatever, it's free and publicly available as well. And so can you talk a little bit about what differentiates this conditional demographic disparity CDD tests with the tens or, or potentially hundreds of other statistical tests that have been used as metrics of bias in data sets? Yes, certainly. So that's actually quite exciting. And that's the second paper that complements the first one. I also wrote a paper which is called Bias Preservation in Machine Learning and the Legality of Fairness Metrics and Non-Discrimination Law. So exactly the question that you just asked me. Mm -hmm. So what we did there is we looked at 20 different fairness tests and we came up with a classification system on how they make decisions. The one category is called bias-preserving bias tests, and the other one is called bias-preserving, uh, bias-transforming fairness tests. So what we looked at is that the majority of them, so 13 out of 20, 
uh, bias preserving. So what they do is they look at the error rates to measure fairness. So they want to make sure that whatever type of decision has been made and is now being made has the same base rate for errors. The other ones, the other seven, are more looking at decision rates. So they're looking at how the outcome is distributed across certain groups. So that is the main contribution coming up with that distinction and trying to tease out the underlying assumption of this. One bucket says, as long as we're not making things worse than they used to be, I give my fairness check and it's okay. The bias transforming metrics that look at the decision rate say, I'm only happy if equal outcomes are happening across group. So this is the underlying assumption. This is fine unless you look at what European non-discrimination law wants to do. Non-discrimination law in Europe mm. is not just about formal equality as in do not actively treat somebody differently because of their race or gender or sexual orientation, which is more like a negative form as in passive form of discrimination law. Non-discrimination law in Europe is much more about substantive equality, which is more about actively dismantling inequality. Keeping things as they are is not good enough in Europe. So you're supposed to take an active role as much as you can, both the private and the public sector, to actually make the world a fairer place. And the majority of those fairness tests don't do that because they condition on an unequal status quo, and they freeze that. And that is the main problem. And with our fairness test and with other that are bias transforming, you could countervene that at least, or give the opportunity to actually make it better. Got it, got it. And so at least for those whose problem is specifically covered under the regime of the European non-discrimination test, this CDD is the only test, the only fairness test that is adequate. Not, not the only one. Like anything that is bias transforming, and there are seven others that are also bias transforming. Ah, got it. You could use those definitely. You could, got it. Those are absolutely fine to use, and we pointed out in the papers, we listed exactly. Okay enough other tests that you could use. And also, it is not to say that you cannot use bias-preserving metrics completely in Europe. It just depends on what the context is. If you're making decisions, life-changing decisions, about people in Europe in a sector that is A, protected, and that is B, known to exhibit bias, then you should use a bias-transforming metrics because it at least gives you the ability to make something better than it used to be. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to make it better, but you need to at least justify it in a way. Got it. However, you could still use a bias-preserving metrics and either justify that as well, but I think it's difficult. But there are legitimate areas where you can use it where you don't have a problem. So if you use it for research only, where it doesn't affect people, absolutely fine to use bias-preserving in Europe as well. 
if you are unsure of what a good outcome would actually look like. It's much better to keep things as they are than making them worse, right? If you don't have a normative idea of how things ought to be, then you can use them as well. You can also use them if there are situations where we have either justified bias or even desired bias. If we wanted that and wanted to preserve that, that is fine to use as well. And in areas where you do actually have ground truth, where there is no bias in the data set, you can also use bias preserving metrics. So there's a whole range where you can justifiably use it. The only problem is that if you're making life-changing decisions about people in a protected sector, and that sector is known to exhibit certain biases, then the preference would be it be easier for you from a legal perspective to use bias transforming ones because at least they offer the possibility of making things better than they used to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the first contribution of this paper is this drawing the distinction between bias preserving and bias transforming and correlating those two classes of fairness metrics or bias metrics to the European non-discrimination law. But then you're also proposing this new test. How is that new test advantage relative to the class of bias transforming metrics that can work under the European law? What you really need to do and what a bias test should help you do is reflect on what you are able to do in order to make a positive contribution. The bias test is not supposed to tell you what's right or wrong. It should just tell you that something might be a problem. It's supposed to act as an alarm system. So what you should be doing is that you run, let's say you thinking about loan decisions, that you run your algorithm that is distributing loan decisions and it will tell you, oh, did you know that your current deployment doesn't give black people any loans? And then it will tell you what kind of conditions, uh, criteria and variables were conditioned on. And what that helps to do is to have an informed discussion on whether or not certain biases are justifiably or not. Because again, in Europe, under discrimination law, not everything needs to be fair. What needs to happen is if something is unfair, you need to tell me why. And that is the mm. thing that the test helps you to do. Because let's go back to the bank example. You could say, for example, what we use income to make decisions on whether somebody should get a loan, which makes intuitive lot of sense, right? And you could put those criteria conditioning on input in there and it would tell you, oh, hardly any women are getting loans. Is that on purpose, right? And then you could ask the question, okay, I'm conditioning on, on salary and it has a negative effect on gender. Is that justified? Because you could say, well, how can we even use income since we know about the race and gender pay gap? That's a horrible criteria to use in the first place. And say, oh, we're not going to use that. We're not going to do that. Or you could say, well, yes, we know about those inequalities, but it's a very effective and defendable proxy on whether or not somebody will be repairing a loan and actually putting people in a situation where they have to default or will default and in-depth them even further is also irresponsible. So maybe we should be using income, right? Or you could say, well, okay, income isn't great, 
But how about those other criteria, additional criteria that are also very good at predicting something, but are not as disadvantaging as, for example, income? That's the dialogue you need to have. And the test can help you to do that because it would lay open how your current decision system is affecting or is making decisions across groups where you could see, does it actually make equal decisions across gender lines or uh, lines of ethnicity or age or whatever? And it tells you what kind of criteria we're conditioned on. And then you can justify to yourself and ideally actually to the general public as to why those criteria are acceptable to use, even if they maybe end up unequal distribution, if it is the only way to go about it, right? Because that's the very unconvenient and unhappy discussion we need to have is what kind of disparity is acceptable and which is not. And that bias test will let you do that. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, and this is, you know, maybe apparent from the name that the key thing that you, the key innovation or contribution of this new test is that it makes explicit this conditioning on other factors, something that's, you know, maybe you don't have the same degree of flexibility or the same mechanism to do that conditioning with some of the other tests. Yes, exactly. Got it. Got it. And then, so you've now got this test, you've identified the, the relationship between these tests and, and this particular set of regulations in Europe. You know, what are the next steps for you in pursuing this research or, or more broadly your interest in bias, fairness, and discrimination in the law? Yes. Yeah, fantastic question. I'm definitely going to maintain an interest in in all those three areas going forward. I think one of the next topics that I will be diving a bit more into is the new regulation that is looming at the horizon here in Europe. Uh, There's a new draft that came out by the European Commission, the AI Act, that is the first ever, first attempt at a regulatory, comprehensive regulatory framework to govern that. So there will be I think a lot of work that not just me, I think a lot of people will try to dive their teeth into to figure out whether this is a good attempt and what can be done there. So I think that will remain a very active research area. And the other ones that I'm definitely going to go into are areas of health that I'm particularly interested in, as well as education and financial services. And those latter two areas, health and, well, three, health, education, financial services, still looking at the intersections of those with AI and the law or uh, the law in particular? I think those three areas will accompany me definitely, but I will probably look at it more from like a power perspective and a broader regulatory uh, landscape and oversight. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, Sandra, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you are working on. Very interesting stuff and certainly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.